What does a church need to grow? What do you reckon? What does a church need to grow? If I were to put a little kind of a, you know, a brainstorming board, you all do that work, brainstorming board, let's think, church growth, how's that going to happen? All of you, because of your professions, all of your tendencies, you come up with all sorts of things. Even your, your, your church backgrounds, you come up with all sorts of stuff. What do we need? We need more internet presence. That's what you techie geeks would say. You know, you know, we need to do more evangelism, a greater emphasis on community, perhaps some mercy. We need to get out there more to, to help all the people in a clearer vision. I need to be a visionary. That's what the management consultants would tell you. Um, you know, we'd be better networking with other churches, do more church plants. That's, of course, the way, isn't it? Well, to be honest, it could be all of the above. It could be. I mean, I've got so many books on this subject, and I've been to so many talks where you hear, and you hear this one great emphasis, this is the way it's got to be. This is the, Apparently, I was listening to the other day, uh, there's a book in America where say, one guy has actually said, you need good landscaping in your church. <laughs> you know, in the church campus, you need good landscaping and a nice coffee shop. That, that's the way the church growth happens. But what do we see in Acts? What do we see here? Do have it open. It's a massive chunk. Let's remember where it's come from, though. You've got Luke. He's the apostle. Um, sorry. Luke. He's the author, the writer, traveling companion of Paul. Therefore, a lot of what he sees is first-hand um, documentation, eyewitness accounts, uh, certainly in the latter ch- um, chapters of Acts. But we know he's a careful researcher. He writes both in Luke and in Acts, and saying he's writing an orderly account. But he's also a very elegant writer. He's brilliant Greek, most scholars would tell you. And that is why, probably, that it's about 25% of the New Testament is written by Luke. Both Luke, the Gospel, and Acts, we're reading here. So what do we see? What do we see in Acts? Well, certainly we see church growth, don't we? Have you noted that throughout all these early chapters that we've been walking through? The apostles, they've been appointed, they've been empowered to take the Gospel out to firstly Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's, if you like, the mission statement of the whole book, chapter 1, verse 8. It's a big task, but to this point, it doesn't seem to be going very well, does it? They're stuck in Jerusalem. But things are happening, and the church is certainly growing. Chapter 2, verse 41, 3,000 were added to them that day. Then verse 47 of chapter 2, the Lord added to their number daily. That little phrase keeps coming up. Chapter 4, verse 14 as well. Growth is happening, but how? See, what we find in Acts is not necessarily a church strategy. Actually, I think there is. But simply, the apostles just preached the word of God. And God, in his sovereignty, added to their number. That is church strategy. Number one, he just preached the word of God. And let God do the rest. See, what we find um, here in Acts, and certainly in this section, is a growing church. And we see God is utterly committed to that venture, to his church growing. Because when his church grows, when more and more people turn to and trust in in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour, he is more glorified. But what we see today, more specifically than anywhere else in Acts, is we see, yes, the church continues to grow. But even through all these things that are occurring, and we see them, I put them in your outline at the back of your sheets, even through complaining, death, deportations, really exile, but we're going to come to that, and then persecutors as well. 
what I hope, and I'm going to be brief for today, so don't panic. Um, I hope as we look through these exciting chapters of Acts, that we see that God is utterly committed and will grow his church. Now that doesn't negate our responsibility. Don't hear me wrong here. But it does demonstrate that God is wholly in control and delights to grow his church for his praise and glory. So firstly, first point, very quickly, God will grow his church even through complaining. We haven't got time to reread the passage. Anna read it, read it very well for us just a few moments ago. Let me make a few observations. Look at verse 1. We see the situation there. Chapter 6, verse 1. There's a bunch of widows. Um, and wherever they're from, whatever the situation they've come from, in that society, in that culture, widows were incredibly vulnerable. There is no benefit state. Okay? Now, compounding that situation, there were widows who spoke in the local language. They're described there as the Hebraic widows. They spoke either Hebrew or Aramaic at that point. Or, um, and th- sorry, the other group are the Grecian widows that spoke Greek. Now, the Grecian widows, we see the situation. They felt hard done by, overlooked. Bitterness probably coming. And we get complaining. That is the situation. The apostles, they resolve to sort out the situation, don't they? And that they want to continue to preach and to teach the gospel. We see that in verse 4. That's what they've been empowered and appointed to do. And the Lord was adding to their number. So they wanted to do that for his praise and glory. But the apostles, they can't overlook this situation. They've got all these widows. And there's complaining as well. And there's neediness and bitterness. Therefore, they organise people to be appointed. They take this responsibility from them. And in verses 5 and 6, you see probably what we've described from the the pastor epistles, 1 Timothy and Titus, the first appointment of deacons within the local church. But what are we going to learn from a passage like this? Now, can I just say, if you're not a Christian, or you're just maybe investigating, or you're a young Christian, whatever it may be, just note here that the Bible is not unrealistic about this rowdy bunch of people who sat around you. It's not unrealistic, is it? In fact, what you see here um, is some complaining and some bitterness. And the Bible is not hiding that from you. That is not to legitimise complaining. This isn't to say, oh, please, give, you know, after, just queue up, please, you know, give us some complaining. No, but the Bible is honest. It's realistic about the human state. Because a church is a, is a gathering of people who, no, who recognise in and of themselves, that we're not perfect. We come together because we understand that we are people who lack in numbers of ways, don't we? Which is also, I guess, a warning to Christians, anyone who's here, who is a Christian, and thinks, oh, I don't need church. Because the Christian faith and the, and the church being an expression of that faith is a gathering of, of people who recognise that they are in need, both before God And amongst each other. But you see, the church does everything it can to model the saviour on which it is founded as its cornerstone. Because we try to model a saviour who's given up absolutely everything. By dying on a cross to save us from our sin and the justice that we deserve before God. You see, we learn from Christ to love each other because he has loved us in a way more radical way than we can possibly love each other. In giving up his life for us. You see, all of us are needy. And perhaps our needs are different. 
But a church is a place that is full of needy people. You may be financially needy. You may be spiritually needy. You may be physically needy. You may be emotionally needy. All sorts of neediness, but, and all sorts of differing degrees of neediness. But it should be kind of recognised, this is the place of neediness. And it's the place where Christ has come and will demonstrate his supremacy over that neediness and give us everything we absolutely need. It begs a question, doesn't it, to Christians here. How much do you therefore give to the church? And I don't just mean financially, I do mean that too. But Because there is neediness all around. We need you. How much are you willing to give? You can give in all different ways, in the ways that you've been gifted. But there is utter need around you. How much are you willing to give? Perhaps a more direct application of this section would be, just watch your complaining. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? Now, God will grow his church despite your complaining. I think it's pretty clear here. But note, it did distract the apostles. They had to make kind of arrangements to find deacons and all the men that are kind of noted there, as you see in verse 7. But it did distract them. So try not to complain. Try to be a peacemaker rather than a complainer. The appointment of the deacons brings unity, we see, between the Grecian and the Hebraic Jews and the care for their widows. But the appointment of deacons also supports the ministry, the proclamation of the word. That the word of God spread and the church grew rapidly, we see there at the end of that short passage. Now, we don't have deacons at this stage in this church. The church is growing. And we will need to consider that very shortly as elders, I think. I think that would be appropriate. But the big point is God will grow his church, even through such complaining. Second point, God will grow his church even through death. We're going to move on by looking at verse, um, chapter 6, verse 8. Oh, it's really the, the story of Stephen. Some of that has been read out already. Unfortunately, we couldn't read the wonderful um, sermon of his in chapter 7, but hopefully you'll be able to read that later. But perhaps this is one thing in, the, in these early years that, that gets the church going more than absolutely anything else. It's like a ripple in an ocean, if you like, that becomes a tsunami uh, of effect as it kind of reaches out through all the scattering of God's people. And it begins with this man here. His name is Stephen. Stephen, do you know he's a deacon? He's not an elder. He's not an apostle. Anything like that. But interestingly here, he performs. He's the one performing miraculous signs and wonders, isn't it? Now, just think for a moment about that. Because miraculous, and signs, miraculous signs and wonders, they always occur in the Bible around God specially revealing himself at a particular time in a particular place. God seems to use miraculous signs and wonders to validate a truth. And so here, the message being made to the world, being made known to the world, is that Christ died, yeah? But also that he was raised. That sounds crazy. That a man who was in a grave that Romans were guarding would be risen and walking around for people to see. It's absolutely bonkers. Now you try and tell that truth to people around. That would be a very difficult thing, wouldn't it? 
if it weren't validated by miraculous signs and wonders. And here we have that happening. The proclaimer of the event, Stephen, is being validated. The message that he is proclaiming is being validated by the signs and the wonders that he is able to perform. But as ever, with the threatened ranks of Jews, opposition arises in verse 9, you see. Verse 11, do you see how it mirrors Christ? False testimony comes within the court. Um, It was created just as in Christ's trial. Stephen is arrested and he is brought before the Sanhedrin. And then we get to chapter 7. And we should all kind of go groan in disappointment because we're not going to look through it. And I am terribly sorry. It is a fantastic speech there. And just recognise, if you can for a moment, when you read this tonight as you go to bed, this man is speaking these words to people he knows have the power to kill him. Look at his confidence. Look at his clarity. Look at how he knows his Bible. It's a wonderful sermon showing how God has worked through history and how God's people have rejected again and again the messengers of God. Stephen mentions Joseph and Moses, but if you like, he is the same point. You're ignoring the messenger of God. You're rejecting the messenger of God. It's me, he's saying. And people have continually, God's people have continually done the same thing. But God has shown throughout history, as he points out, that he is sovereign over that. And he has protected his people. And the church has grown. And their unwillingness to respond to God in Stephen leads to this rather full frontal condemnation. I'd like to turn to that if you can. Do turn to chapter um, 7, verse 51. This is Stephen at the end of his speech. Follow with me. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, speaking of Christ. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into effect through the angels, but have not obeyed it. And look at their response, verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious. Gnashed their teeth at him, but Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This, they covered their ears and, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Friends, that is an amazing passage, isn't it? And even at the end of Stephen's life, he followed Christ. He trusted Christ. All he had to do was say, oh, I know, it's a bit of a crazy story. Just forgive me for a moment, will you? Uh, No. no. He trusted Christ to the end. But was Stephen's prayer answered at the end there? It was, wasn't it, for one man. Saul, 
was there giving approval to his death. It's interesting that, isn't it? We'll see in a moment why. Incidentally, that, that is probably who Luke is getting this stuff from. He probably wasn't there at this stoning and certainly wouldn't have been there within Sanhedrin. Who's Luke getting this from? That it's such an accurate and detailed account of what Stephen has said. Who would have been tr- you know, utterly kind of transfixed by what Stephen is saying and seen the stones? One man. One man. And that is Saul. So what do we learn? If you are not a Christian here today, do not reject God's word as you hear it. Do not be one of those stiff-necked people with ears that fail to hear of this wonderful, saving, resurrecting truth. And for all of us here, for Christians, note that God is going to win. All the terrible things that you may face in this life, God will prevail in the end. Do you see how here it seems like one of God's greatest evangelists at this stage has just been killed by an angry mob, dragged out. They're childlike, aren't they? They can't even want to hear it. They go, oh, no, you know, they want to listen. You know, it's just so embarrassing the way that these very powerful men, the Sanhedrin, behave. They don't want to hear the truth. Does it just seem like God has lost control, that Stephen has just been dragged outside and stoned? Well, they're probably thinking that will stop the nonsense, won't they? But look what happens. Let's turn to verse, chapter 8, verse 1. Just on the second little part of that verse, under the heading there. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. See, God prevailed. The church was scattered, and we'll see it grew as a result of that scattering. You see, God is going to win. You just need to make sure you're on his side. Also note that Stephen wasn't an elder. He wasn't an apostle. He was a deacon. A passionate evangelist. I say that because I think all of us need to be encouraged. Whoever we are. Whatever we feel that we have as gifts. Whether that's teaching the Bible, whether that's wealth that we've been given because of the jobs that we're in, a passion for making Christ known, or just a good listening ear, great hospitality, care for the physically needy. We've all been given gifts by God to be used for his people and for his glory. We're a needy bunch, but there are needs all around us that need meeting. And it cannot just be down to me and the elders Bible study leaders. It's got to be all of us, hasn't it? Especially as we grow. Lastly, I want us to point out from this passage, rejoice in God. Do you see that in Stephen? Even as stones, which probably would have been boulders, just heavy enough so a man could throw them a distance of about 10 to 15 metres down a hill. Even in that, and it was a long, enduring pain, He was rejoicing in his saviour because his confidence was in Christ. God will grow his church even through a martyr's death. 
Thirdly, God will grow his church even through deportation. As I said, it's not really deportation because it's kind of self-imposed. They, they've got to get out of there, haven't they? They instigated, it's kind of an exile. They're scattered, it's a diaspora or whatever it's called in the, in the original. They're, they're chased by the authorities, but wherever they went, do you see that in Acts 8.4? Do you notice that? Cast your eyes down there. What did they do? Set up camp, find some nice food to eat. No, they preached the word. Verse 4 implies that the scattered believers would have gone to a number of places. But the one thing that's mentioned, that wherever they went, they did, they preached the word. And what we have in this next section is, essentially, they've been scattered to all these places. And what he does is he takes one little fragment and says, let's go to this one and see what happens. And here we turn to Philip. Chapter 8, verse 5. He goes on. Philip went down to the city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. And so what? There was great joy in the city. Philip, not even a deacon, not even an elder, not an apostle, still preaching the word. And such was Philip's presence in Samaria. Samaria, we haven't got time to go into that, but you kind of go, whoa, Samaria? That's what everyone would have been saying in the original, but they, just bear with me and just go work, work with it. You kind of go, whoa, Milton Keynes? No, I'm only joking <laughs> if you're from there. But it's that kind of thing. He, he impressed, he dazzled, he convinced, and did miraculous things. He preached the word, most importantly. Simon was obviously impressed. Now, many aren't kind of... We haven't got time to go into Simon. Please read, read the, the story later from verse 9 down to verse 25. But, you know, people aren't sure about the veracity of his commitment, his faith. Rightly so, of what we learn in Acts later on. But also what we learn from early church history as well. <laughs> it's interesting that his name uh, is, is taken, isn't it? You know, have you ever heard of Simony? Maybe not, that's just a boring church history thing. But simony is the, is the action of purchasing a position in a church with money. Which it seems that's what is going on here. Anyway, but despite that distraction, the focus remains on Philip and the word being preached. Now with an Ethiopian. Amazing story. And just read that one, that is just an absolute gem. You see, if you want to know, if you're not a Christian here today, what gets us out of bed in the morning as Christians? You've you got to focus here. This is, this is just the heart of what makes us sing with joy and the children upstairs. The Ethiopian is reading Isaiah, of all things. And he's reading what's called a servant song in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. And it's the very thing he needs. That is... It speaks of the forgiveness of our sin, our need for salvation in someone who is to be a sheep, like a sheep to a slaughter, a lamb before a shearer, and so on, who would take on God's justice instead of us. It's an awesome story. It's a prophecy of Christ, demonstrating Christ as the awesome saviour that we all need, who would die in our place. Some brief notes from these little stories. Again, I'm sorry about the brevity of this. One, how do we know this is all true? I mean, some crazy stories going on here. And uh, how do we know that what is being read in by the Ethiopian eunuch is true? Because Christ was raised from the dead. 
You see, in Christ being resurrected, he vindicates the message of his resurrection. To prove the message. The prophesied message from Isaiah is fulfilled in the proclamation of the gospel through Stephen, through Philip, and through me, and through you. Secondly, who took uh, the lead in the evangelism? It's Philip. It's not an apostle. Not an elder. Did he know his Bible? Yes. Absolutely he did. So he can understand it. And so we can explain it to others. You want to know why we at this church seem to spend more time in this than anything else? Why we kind of go, why don't you do some prep before you get there on Tuesday night for your Bible study? Why do I say that? Because I want you to know it so you can explain it and understand it and teach it with clarity to the person who sat opposite you in your office. To the person as you walk to the train station on the way to work. And to anyone that you bump into in any part of your life. If you think we're doing this just to make us feel great about ourselves and how much we know. You've got it completely wrong. And please forgive me if I've ever portrayed that. It is for the 10,000 people that are walking around this area. this place called Earthsford. Who need Christ. Please do realise opportunities for sharing the gospel are coming your way. You miss them sometimes because you may not be ready. Please be ready. Third little application from this. You can do this through struggles, through persecutions. They're shown here. You can even do it in the back of a chariot on a dusty road. you just got to be ready. Fourthly, this is also why we want to grow our budgets, if you like, what we were talking about earlier. To support more and more and more people who can sit down with you and others and teach you the gospel. Maybe not in a dusty road, in a chariot. Maybe in a coffee shop in Ellsfield or somewhere. But that's why we need more money. Simply to allow more people to teach the gospel. So, thirdly, and now lastly, fourthly, God will grow his church even through persecutors. Think of uh, the persecution and oppression of Christians today. Think of North Korea. You can think of China. You can think of Syria. And many, many other Islamic um, states and radical Buddhist states as well. Pakistan and so on. And India. That is nothing, nothing in comparison to what is going on in chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. People being dragged out onto the streets, as you see. See, God will grow his church through persecution. But, in a sense, that is less miraculous than this fourth point. God will grow his church even through persecutors. Do you get that? Do you see the difference? Uh, We see that. Look at at, um, chapter 9, verse 1, if you can. Follow with me. Meanwhile, Saul, who we heard about, chapter 8, verse 1, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. He wants to root them out. Get rid of them. So he found if they belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He wasn't satisfied, Saul. Um, as a, you know, he wanted to find Christians everywhere, rid the whole area of these blasphemers as he would have viewed them. Do you know what he wrote later in Timothy? 1 Timothy chapter 1, he said this of himself, having become a Christian. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. 
even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. It goes on in verse 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, he says. The point of this whole point here, and I'm not going to go through his conversion on the way to Damascus, read it, it's brilliant, it's exciting, but the point is this, even the worst of sinners can be used to grow God's church. There's challenge there, I think, but there's also comfort. Challenge, because I wonder how many of us have actually discounted various members of our friendship groups, maybe maybe even a colleague who's really hostile, who's just going to mock you tomorrow if you tell them anything about church. Have you discounted them because you think they're just beyond the pale? Have you? Have you said, there's no way that that person's a minimum Christian? They're too far. They seem to hate it too much. Have you discounted someone like that? Have you even not bothered to pray for them because you just said no in your own heart and mind? John Newton, who was once a slave trader himself but became a Christian, in a boat, on his knees with his Bible open, realised the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and wept for a whole night. He gave up everything, became a minister in London, steering hundreds to faith, and shepherded Wilberforce and Pitt, who was Prime Minister and MP, toward the famous act in Parliament to abolish slavery in this country. He wrote the amazing, amazing grace, the great hymn, how amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, I once was lost but now I'm found blind, now I see. Who do you think is beyond the reaches of God's grace? Well, Newton once says, I have never despaired of any man since God saved me. We need to know the depths of our own sin, of our own fallenness, of our own neediness. But at the same time, we need to know that it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that has lifted us up, opened our eyes, and can open the eyes of the person that you have maybe in the past, said they're too far. They're too too gone. They don't like anything. If you don't believe me, look at Paul. What a challenge. But also what a a great comfort. Because undeserving though we are, God in his supreme love and mercy first blinds us with his dazzling glory as he does with Paul on the way to Damascus. And then he opens our eyes so that we might see him, filling us with his spirit, making us his possession for his pleasure and good. And the natural thing happens. Paul is appointed, Saul becomes Paul, is appointed as an apostle. He has witnessed the risen Lord Jesus Christ on that road. And what happens and what follows is natural. And we'll hear more about that in the following weeks in his missionary journeys and so on. But let me finish with a story, if I can, and an encouragement. Firstly, the story. I had a friend who I sat next to in maths throughout my sixth form. Um, and I knew him for, for many years before. He was called Graham Sharp. He was sharp because he was... Um, the person who got the highest grade in the whole country in A-level further maths, maths, physics and chemistry in the year that we did our A-levels. He was an utter genius. He did get 100% in his maths A-level. That is annoying. He hated Christ. And he sat next to me and berated me for years. 
and we would undermine every argument I could possibly have uh, for the validity, of, the validity of Christ. I invited him to everything. He turned down everything. I was good to him. I didn't mock him, even though he was a complete geek. Um, we had a reasonable time together. About four years later, I was playing the guitar at a conference. And I nearly swore while singing a song. Because <laughs> I saw this guy, Graham Sharp, standing in this very large congregation, in his gangly geekiness, praising God. And I, I, I nearly ran down the stage and beat him up. <laughs> but I... I went to him afterwards and he told me his story and he'd come to faith, he'd gone to Cambridge and now he's lecturing there, doing his doctorate and all this kind of stuff. And he'd come to faith. And it was such an encouragement to me and an embarrassment to me because I thought he was beyond the reaches of God's grace. He wasn't. Because no one is. God will grow his church. An encouragement... I hope so. God will grow his church despite us, or with us, or through us. And can I gently say to you, don't miss out on this. Come and run with God rather than against him. You may face persecution. Some of us may even face death. There will be some complaining along the way, I'm sure. But like in Samaria, we will have the privilege of feeling and of knowing that joy in this place. I hope that is true. The joy of knowing that we've been privileged to work for God in his strength in making the gospel known for the forgiveness of sins of many people around here in Earlsfield and throughout this great city. That's our prayer. So let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, forgive us when we haven't um, been as we ought to and we've complained and we've held back the work of proclaiming the gospel but we rest on you our shield and our defender because we have seen from this passage that you will continue to grow your church through complaining through death through everything that seems to happen and yet we know that you are the great king you are the sovereign one and you long to use us Lord please melt our hearts our stubbornness and help us to know the joy of serving you wouldn't it be lovely if Samaria that model of going into the city there was great joy in the city would be modelled and made known in Earlsfield Lord that would give you so much glory and we long for that time Amen we're going to stand and we're going to sing my favourite hymn to probably the best tune of any hymn ever written we rest on thee our shield and our defender. The music's by Sibelius. The words are by someone else, and I can't remember who. But this is what we need. Cherry. Edith Cherry. She's great. Let's stand. Let's sing. With joy in our hearts. And praise to God. Just before we go, I'm going to read uh, one of the verses that we've just been uh, reading.